0: Good afternoon. Uh, happy Martin Luther King Day holiday. It's uh, John Rehm with the Nebraska Comp Podcast. Podcast, podcast about workers' compensation and employment law. Uh, we t- I talk about civil rights laws on lots of episodes. Yeah, I talked my first episode was about civil was about the expansion of um, sexual orientation, possible sexual orientation and gender identity or expand our uh, title seven of our federal laws to cover civil rights act to cover on the job discrimination against based on gender identity and sexual orientation talked about the gutting of a old civil rights law uh, section 1981 that provides extra protections to African-Americans or you know special protections to African-American citizens um talked about that in our fourth episode and this week uh there was another civil rights case uh the bab case uh uh, bab was an employee of the veterans administration who was claiming age discrimination uh this case got a lot of some media attention for uh, justice robert's use of the term okay boomer uh which you know if you're online or you even have to be online if you're really know much about pop culture or the news or political entertainment. You know, OK Boomer is a, a kind of a jibe against older Americans, against baby boomers. And, you know, Robert's use of OK Boomer during a Supreme Court argument, I guess, was newsworthy. You know, as OK Boomer discriminate discrimination. And actually the lawyer in that case answered it the right way. The lawyer answered, well, you know, if it's made you know, by a hiring, by somebody making the decision to terminate within the scope of the decision to terminate, then yeah, that certainly can't say, okay, boomer, that would be evidence of age discrimination. But the issue in the BAB case was, does but for causation apply in age discrimination under the laws that protect federal employees? It already does for private sector employees and, um, but not not for federal government employees, and that's the issue in the Bab case. And again, it looks like the Supreme Court wants to, or at least they, they want to put but for causation into as many uh, civil rights laws as as possible to make it more difficult to win these cases. Again, you know, but for causation doesn't necessarily. <clears throat> You can still bring cases that's harder. I mean, in theory, if you can show that age is one factor in causation or uh, for 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 for, a, for an adverse employment decision or a termination, if you can show age is one factor, in theory, you ought to a jury ought to be able to sort out how important that factor is. Bluntly, that doesn't always happen. Cases get thrown out on summary judgment. But again, it seems to me from what I think is going to happen is I think the Supreme Court will expand Title VII to include sexual orientation and gender identity and will try to impose but for causation on many other civil rights laws or employment laws as possible because of the influence of the employment Will Doctrine, which is essentially something that was created by a law professor in the 1870s. You can go back and listen to my first episode. I don't know. I want to talk a little bit more about age discrimination before I get in uh, to talk about things specific to what people consider the civil rights era. Um, and Kind of maybe making a civil rights analogy here. And I've written this blog post before, and it, when I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, I, I found an article... Uh, up on NBC News that argued some similar things. Um, age discrimination only applies to people that are over 40. It doesn't apply to people that are under 40. Now, in Canada, that that's different. But, you know, obviously the United States isn't Canada. But there are a lot of explicit discrimination. You know, who's under 40? Millennials. Generation Z. You know, but millennials get pick, seem to get picked on the most. And or you know millennials and gen z are sort of conflated together but you know the the discrimination open discrimination is more or less allowed against millennials i wrote a blog post about a year ago you know there's all these human resources types you know who basically who, who are on twitter and social media linkedin in particular and they think employment at will is great and and whatever, and a lot of it, but the thing is, uh you know, a lot of them will post things up. There's this thing that was posted up a couple of years ago called the Millennial Job Interview, and it's just blatant, blatant discrimination against younger workers. But that's completely okay and lawfully. You you you're you're completely free to get away with that. And I think it, to some extent, it hurts younger workers who bring workers' compensation claims because they get viewed as whiners and they get viewed as soft and. You know who ends up doing more manual labor jobs? Who ends up doing more grunt work? The, the the younger the younger workers. So, I think age discrimination has a bad effect, particularly on workplace safety for for younger workers. But you know, age discrimination is weird. And the, here's the analogy I'll make about age discrimination about the problem with allowing discrimination against younger workers, but letting it go against older workers, and I've been thinking about this. Let's just imagine that race discrimination or nationality discrimination, I don't really like the term race, but nationality, race discrimination worked the same way as age discrimination. So if if nationality or race discrimination worked the same way, there would be certain groups that you could not discriminate against and other groups that you could openly discriminate against. You know, for example, let's say that you could openly discriminate against Asians but you couldn't discriminate against African Americans. Um so my view is you know if you can openly stereotype against one group of people then then it's hard for employers or human resources people to pull back from that instinct to stereotype about another group of behavior even if it's unlawful and I think you know, maybe that's part of the reason why age discrimination cases have heightened causation standards. So essentially you know if one group can be discriminated against it's easier to discriminate against another group regardless of what the law says. So I think better law on age discrimination would just be to you know do it like they do in in Canada and get put it at eight, 18 years of age but anyway uh for the King Day holiday you know civil rights laws comprise a lot of classes you know that aren't traditionally you know thought of as you know within the civil rights movement uh when, you know talked about gender identity sexual orientation talked about age and again these things are you know these classes of categories are not traditionally thought of within the the civil rights movement and so i want to go in and transition and talk a little bit more about in you know in a way you know what is the traditional civil rights movement there was some argument about that and i guess that's a good segue into my talk about i read over the book over the over the holiday season the second founding by eric Foner. i recommend it um but again, talking about the more traditional civil rights movement, which is often thought to be, you know, the equality for African Americans in Dr. Martin Luther King in the 1950s and the 1960s, the civil rights movement. You know, but the civil rights movement is, you know, according is in a way just a continuation, or kind of a after a long interim, there is a continuation of the struggle for African American inequality that began, you know somewhat before the Civil War, but really, in earnest, more like where we start, you know, making laws and having case law decision, you know, in earnest, you know, really starts formally after the Civil War. So, I mean, in the Civil Rights Movement is sort of seen as a second Reconstruction, whereas according to Eric Foner, the second founding, his article about, his book about the Reconstruction era after the Civil War is a second founding. So it's a rethinking of the constitutional order. And when civil rights laws came about, you know, originally in the, you know, from the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, 14th Amendment creating equality of citizenship, 15th Amendment the right to vote, you know, there was an argument as to whether sex would be covered along with race. And obviously sex was not included in that after the Civil War, but I'm going to talk a little bit about race discrimination and then um, transition to how that discussion of race discrimination and civil rights intersects with workplace safety and workplace rights and how it intersected with the work of Dr. King. And I'll be back here in a couple minutes to talk about that. Part of the reason that the civil movement for civil rights was in the 20th century was so necessary was because of court, Supreme Court decisions made after the Civil War in the late 19th century, even going into the early 20th century. And these decisions are talked about in the second founding by Eric Foner. It's a good legal history. It's a good refresher course for lawyers, and I think it's understandable for lay people as well non lawyers is a very good writer and breaks things down so people can understand. but the legal history is interesting as to why the civil rights um movement was necessary and i'm gonna focus talk about three cases. That I think are important in three cases that I can, we can use, we can talk about in terms of the 21st century and also talk about how they're relevant today. Um, I think a big mistake some make, um, you know, particularly those that are pro worker rights or more leftists, can sometimes, you know, ignore. The particular struggles of, particularly if you're white, ignore the particular struggles of African Americans. And I want to talk about two cases, Supreme Court cases, just lay it out um, about how the races, particular racism against African Americans. Two cases. I'm going to talk about Yick versus Hopkins and Plessy versus Ferguson. Which Plessy versus Ferguson, well-known case. Yick Wo versus Hopkins, not quite as well-known. But in 1886, Yick versus v. Hopkins is decided. And Yick versus v. Hopkins involves a San Francisco law that was racially neutral, but uh, regulated uh, the use of, China, was, was targeted at Chinese laundries, but not, not actually. That actually wasn't in the language of the text. And the Supreme Court uh, goes, you know, beneath the language, you know, goes beyond the language of the plain text. And, you know, the the, the lawyers challenging the, the ordinance made a record of that. And they essentially engaged in, I think, one of the, maybe the first time maybe what's called a pretextual analysis is made, where basically you go in and argue that, well, the reason, you know, what's stated as the reason for the law isn't the real reason, and the real reason is discrimination. So, you know, in, in yick Wo versus Hopkins in 1886, the Supreme Court... Um, basically applies a protextual analysis if we're gonna use modern civil rights terms, uh to strike down a law targeted at at Chinese at, at at Chinese immigrants or Asians. So um so again, you know, laws discriminating against Asians, at least in eighteen eighty six, were um were struck down. I mean, obviously, there's the Korematsu case, which came down the Japanese internment case as well, but you know that there's that too, I guess. But um, but but at least in the in the in the in the 19th century, uh, Yick Wo versus Hopkins, the Supreme Court decided, well, no, yeah, you, you, you can't discriminate against against, you know, the Ch- against Chinese immigrants, and they're willing to look beyond. Uh, the neutral language of of the statute. But ten years later in Plessy versus Ferguson, the uh, the separate but equal case, I mean Louisiana law is pretty express explicit in stating that um African Americans need to ride if there's trains they need to ride in segregated cars. So um I mean, express direct evidence of discrimination to use the kind of modern civil rights term. I mean, if you have a direct evidence case, you don't have to mess around with burden shifting or talk about pretextual analysis. So direct evidence of racial discrimination. And the Supreme Court says, well, no, that's that's OK. That's not really um, that's not really discrimination. And I think what they kind of come up again in Plessy versus Ferguson is something that presages or kind of looks at how, um, how we look at racial and sexual harassment cases. Now, basically the analysis of separate was separate but equal, but separate equals like, well, there's no actual harm if you know, you're separate. Uh, if, if it's, if it's the same facility, of course, you know, They're not looking beyond, the Supreme Court doesn't look beyond, you know, that analysis to show that segregated facilities actually weren't equal. But, again, they don't look beyond that. The Supreme Court ignores express discrimination against African Americans 10 years later. So, and, you know, just kind of looking at Yickwell Hopkins and M. Plessy versus Ferguson, yeah, there certainly is a unique, um, role or burden that African-Americans have been uh, forced to bear in in American history, you know, obviously slavery as well, um, that, but even past slavery, you know, the, the residue, you know, the, the badge of slavery going forward. So, you know, the, the, you have to look, I think, by celebrating Dr. King Day, you have to look and think about the history of African Americans within the uh, United States and, you know, even after slavery. So, anyway, um, the other case that I thought was interesting and has some, you know, that you can really translate translate it to today is the uh, Slaughterhouse Cases from 1873. And, you know, the Slaughterhouse Cases, one, they limited... The effects of the um, of the Fourteenth Amendment uh, that allowed you know it it you gave states you know some free ability to to discriminate it limited the Fourteenth Amendment. It's also interesting how the Slaughterhouse cases were actually chant were actually set up. Uh, the Slaughterhouse cases is actually a regulation a law regulating of all things slaughterhouses, which I have a lot of experience with, um, in Louisiana, but it was done by one of Louisiana's Reconstruction governments. And part of the regulation of the slaughterhouse there's environmental regulations, as well as the fact that African Americans would be, butchers would be allowed to use the, would be allowed to use the uh, slaughterhouse. Um, And so... I mean, these are enacted under your Tenth Amendment police powers, and the um, you know the court narrowly upheld a five-four decision, upholds the Louisiana's use of their the Reconstruction government, Louisiana's use of the uh, police powers to regulate slaughterhouses, but also tamp tamps down the privileges and immunities clauses. Uh, which would have protected more people against um, against discrimination. So, it's interesting, the person who, ch- the lawyer who, ch- who, who filed the challenge against the Reconstruction government was of all persons, I'm going to make sure I get the name right here, uh, looking at my book, name of John Campbell. And John Campbell was the lawyer uh, who challenged the the, the Louisiana law in the Slaughter cases. And John Ca- John Campbell was a former Supreme Court justice who voted with the majority in the Dred Scott case. Subsequently, served as the Confederacy's Secretary of War, who hoped to use the case to undermine the legitimacy of Louisiana's bilateral legisl- or biracial um. Uh, legislature so you know it's just straight out politics litigation is politics you got the former secretary of war of the confederacy trying to use you know trying to mr you know the mr states were you know the the confederacy's you know the the civil war is about states rights well you know 10 years later after they after you know 12 years after appomattox you know all of a sudden that you know they're the the challengers of the uh, of the you know bir- bi-racial governments in the South are resorting back to federal power just like they did in the um, in the Dred Scott case. So also interesting in the field in that in that descent in the Slaughter cases, and you know, particularly Judge Fields from California, or Justice Fields from California, or Stephen Field from California, Justice Field. Um you essentially agreed with that nationalistic interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment and ended up using the Fourteenth Amendment to challenge state laws you know regulating business i mean essentially you know the use of the Fourteenth Amendment, which was used to protect slaves, you know you see the genesis of how it was used to strike down state laws that protected workers and particularly that protected you know workplace safety is struck down you know by use of the federal 14th amendment and you're seeing that to some extent you see echoes of that today in the 21st century in um california where the you have ab5 which takes a lot of gig gig workers and makes them employees, makes them protected by workers' compensation, protected by civil rights laws, able to form unions. And you know, that law in California is enacted under 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 police powers. And it's being challenged on by the gig companies and by some of the trucking companies too, on 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 with federal law. And again, those challenges to state laws like A B five you know, you can trace them back to the slaughterhouse cases, back to Dred Scott, and again, there's there's a uh, there's a tension between how or kind of an intersection of civil rights laws and workplace safety laws, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in the final section of the of the uh, of the pod. Where I talk about the um, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Memphis sanitation worker strike. So, how does the struggle for civil rights? How did the struggle for civil rights in the 1960s intersect with the fight for workplace safety? Well, in early 1968, two Memphis workers in Memphis, Echol Cole and Robert Walker were they they were sanitation workers or you know colloquially known as garbage men, and they were crushed to death by by garbage trucks. They died, and you know this is 1968. Workers' comp is you're still covered by workers' comp, but that the 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 problems with workplace safety or, or the straw that break the camel's back and the the sanitation workers strike in Memphis. And most of the sanitation workers in Memphis are African Americans. And Dr. King goes to Memphis to support them and, you know, tries to, you know, lend the weight of organizations that supported civil rights to the to the um, weight of those seeking, you know, more rights in the workplace, and particularly the rights to a safe workplace. So there's that intersection there, and that's where Martin Luther King was was assassinated was was, was in Memphis that April. But you know, he went there to support strikers who were motivated by improving workplace safety. And obviously I think there's an implicit criticism of workers' compensation laws because they they didn't do enough to prevent the deaths of of workers. And those workers took fairly radical action by engaging in a strike that was, you know, more or less a wildcat strike. It wasn't necessarily sanctioned by a union so and while it, while it's interesting that the that the king joined those joined the striking sanitation joined the striking sanitation workers what the sanitation workers in Memphis were doing engaging in strikes over workplace safety conditions was a fairly common practice in the 1960s and the 1970s and one of the you know, particularly wildcat striking or striking just without the without a without the aid of a union and at least when labor laws were written um wildcat strikes for workplace safety were actually somewhat condoned. Reforms to labor laws, um, you know, made those made that activity legal. But studies show that a lot of ways work, those strikes for workplace safety were actually very effective, more effective than workers' compensation laws, which to some extent are at the mercy of judges and, and legislatures, um, which, in the starting in the late eighties and early nineties and in the two thousands rolled back the protections of those laws, but again, the uh sanitation workers in Memphis, who dr. King went and went and supported, they were doing something striking that was done by many, many types of workers. It was labor militancy was very common during that time so you wouldn't you know if if there's sanitation workers on strike now if you had garbage men on strike or sanitation workers on strike in a good-sized American city that would be big news because that those strikes don't happen as much anymore but back then it, it it wasn't it was it was more common there was a big huge postal workers strike uh back in the and during that time too, uh, in the in the early seventies. So, um, but there was more strikes, and again, the reason that people had strikes was over was over workplace safety. Um, and I think a lot of that militancy, um, particularly when it was channeled by the Nixon administration for the National Commission on Workers' Compensation and in OSHA, you know, was a way to kind of. Address some of that militancy um you know that in part was um supported by the civil rights movement, but you know also just happened on its own as well, so uh, are independent of the civil rights movement and you know the national commission on workers compensation the standard the national standards for workers compensation came about with that. You know, with that labor militancy. So, what happens to labor? Well, I mean, labor's powers gets diminishes. The Teamsters, the transportation, when, when when trucking gets deregulated, the Teamsters start to lose power. When Paul Volcker, um, you know, institutes aus- you know austerity in the late seventies, and the nineteen eighties, and you know, jacks up interest rates to twenty percent. You know, that helps b- break the power of of collective bargaining, you know, pushes down, um, pushes down, pushes people out of the labor force, essentially had a massive recession in the late 70s and early 80s to force that down. Uh, you know, there's changes to labor laws, there's changes to the courts, um, there's also, um, there's trade that outsources unionized jobs overseas so there's lots of things that are done to break the power of organized labor and when labor power is diminished that's when workers compensation quote-unquote reforms start start to happen so um so while i'm optimistic that or you know i'm hopeful that um Something like a minimum standards bill, you know, a new minimum standards bill can be used to improve state workers' compensation laws. Um, I'm not, I don't know how optimistic I am about passage of such laws without some sort of resurrection of the type of labor militancy that we had in the '60s and '70s, that pushed for stronger, you know, workplace safety laws. Again, the National Commission on Workers' Compensation was was a response to labor militancy, and to some extent, we we don't we don't have that anymore. So, I don't know. I mean, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? So, I don't know and again you know not only having you know militant unions but you know having unions having unions that have the support of the civil rights movement and unions that support the civil rights movement as well and you know we don't have you know those those things are kind of atomized right now and we don't have those now here in 2020 and i think the struggle of the 2020s is going to try to be to rebuild re- rebuild some of those institutions or find equivalents of those institutions that we had in the 1960s and 1970s that did push for workplace safety and more equality in the workforce. So anyway, happy Martin Luther King Day. I appreciate everybody listening to this program, and I guess I'll hear, see you.